I'm a huge fan of clothing rental memberships. I think it's such an amazing way to not only save money, but also have a more sustainable home where you just don't buy quite as many things. And it's also an amazing way to explore new styles without the commitment of needing to purchase everything. I recently discovered Armoire, which is a woman-founded and woman-led brand that also spotlights ton of women-owned designers on their website. All you do is take a five-minute style quiz and then you select items that you love and then styles show up at your door in as little as two days. And then whenever you're ready for new clothes, you just swap them out for new styles. So it's on a membership program tier and you can sort of choose the membership you want. I ordered my first case just yesterday and I already got the shipping confirmation for it. I have pieces on the way from Hatch, a pea in the pod, and so much more. I really went all out with the maternity clothes. I got dresses, jumpsuits, maternity jeans, things that I wouldn't otherwise want to buy because I really will only need them for such a limited time. I'll be sharing some of the styles on my stories in the coming weeks, but if you're interested in giving Armoire a try, they are kindly giving my listeners up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. So just visit armoire.style slash real stuff. That's armoire.style spelled A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash real stuff to get up to 50% off your first month. Go give them a try today. Welcome back to the Real Stuff Podcast. Today we have the man, the myth, the legend, the rock and roll king himself, Jimmy Fink, my dad on the podcast. When I was in the process of pitching this show out to different networks, I actually recorded a sample episode of the show and I used my dad as the sample guest. It was such a good episode, but I unfortunately never got permission from my dad to air it because I think we did go a little bit too far for his personal boundaries. We talked a lot about sex, money, and mental health, and I think we pushed it too far. I made it clear to him as I was recording that it was just a sample, so he really opened up, but I cannot air that episode as per his request. Anyway, for me, that kind of stuff we talked about was fun, but the real interesting layers of my dad I think surround his past and the incredible life journey that he's been a part of, the eras he's lived through, the iconic experiences he's had, and just who he is as a human. So for those of you who don't know anything about my dad, just a little setup, although you will hear all about his career, he's been working in radio broadcasting for over five decades. He is a radio DJ, which doesn't actually mean that he's a modern day DJ, you know, mixing music and spinning tracks. It means he's the on-air personality. But I grew up having my dad as the voice of this local radio station in my county. And I have vivid memories from my childhood of my dad picking me up from school and driving me home simultaneously while we were playing his show on the radio in the car. So I would hear him on the radio, see him in the front seat. By the time I was in middle school, even today, as many of us know, radio is not recorded live. So he would usually have recorded the show earlier in the day, and it was airing in the afternoons once he was already back home. So when he picked me up from school, that was when his show was on, and I always got to listen to it with him. My dad is still on the radio today, and you can tune in from anywhere in the world. So the station's called 107.1 The Peak. It's in Westchester. You can listen around the New York tri-state area, but if you want to listen online, no matter where you are in the world, you can go to 1071thepeak.com. That's peak, P-E-A-K. And you just press the little play button at the top and you can stream it live. He is a DJ on every Monday to Friday from 3 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So 
tune in and hear him and it'll be a lot of fun. In today's interview, you're going to hear some amazing stories from his past, from Woodstock to Studio 54 to the disco era. So many things I did not know about him. There's also a very touching moment that we share at the end of the interview. And ultimately, I'm really just grateful to have had the chance to sit down and have this type of conversation with my dad. And I'm so glad it was recorded and that I will have it forever. The fact that I can play this back to my children one day once they've grown brings me a lot of joy. You will also hear reference to how many times we attempted to do the recording because I kid you not, I tried to do it like 10 times before it actually worked. For some reason, he kept getting kicked out of the recording software we use. And then we tried to do it live in person and the audio was bad. So we finally nailed it and figured it out. I wanted to try this fun new thing where I read out loud a review of the day because the show's been getting some amazing reviews on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. I'm so grateful for the written reviews that you're leaving. And this one really hit me. This one's from Andrea Exo. I'm already loving this podcast and the intention behind it. Lucy's authentic curiosity comes through so strongly and her transparent and reflective style feels safe and true. I love that there are solo episodes to continue hearing her exceptional storytelling, but also guest episodes where we can be exposed to other people's stories and perspectives. Unscripted and innovative. I'm looking forward to more. Thank you, Andrea. I'm also looking forward to more. And what you wrote in that review is just exactly the space that I'm trying to create on this show. A safe space that's authentic and true, place where you can really hear other people's perspectives in an unscripted and raw way. So if you're liking the show and you leave it a five-star rating and a written review on Apple, please take a screenshot of it, send it to me over Instagram DM, and I will reply with a personalized voice note thanking you. I am also going to be reading through all of these reviews, and I plan to read a review of the day in every episode. Thank you again for being here, and now it's time. Let's do it. Let's get into today's interview with my dad, Jimmy. Hi, Dad. Hi. Hello, miss. What number podcast attempt is this for us? This is uh, take 12. <laughs> we have had so many 12. technical difficulties. So we're trying this again. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. You're the first Fink family member to come on. I wonder what others will be brave enough to sit on the mic. We'll have to see. Probably the brother. Probably the brother. I think I could convince yeah. Allie. Mom is out. She will not come on. She's out. <laughs> well, here's the thing about you, Dad. I grew up yes. feeling like you had this whole different crazy life before you had kids because I heard stories about the radio. I heard stories about Woodstock and your hippie life. But I don't know. I feel like I know who you are today, but do I really know who you were? Well, we were married for 16 years before we had kids. So there was a lot of uh, fooling around, shall we say, a lot of traveling and a lot of... Uh, uh, partying and uh, stuff like that before we had kids. You were the type of parents who, or I don't know about mom, maybe mom was always the way she is, but you, I believe, are the type of dad who was a certain way and then the moment you had children, your life made a 180 and you became That's true. Jimmy 2.0. That's true, very true. Mama strays an arrow, always was. I, uh, on the other hand, might have dabbled in uh, various substances that your mom never did. And uh, But once I had kids, 
Things changed. All right. I want to get into the substances, but maybe before we talk about those, mm-hmm. career-wise, what's your story? How did you get your start in New York radio? Well, I was really into music from when I was a teenager, and uh, I went away to college. I was uh, a, a home from college for the summer, working in my family business, the bread business. We had a bakery. I called into a radio station to make a request to hear a couple of songs, one from Rod Stewart and one from Van Morrison. Somehow or another, I got connected to Alan Shaw, who was a vice president of ABC. At the time, ABC owned the radio station that I was calling. For some reason, he answered the phone and started quizzing me. It was just a chance answering. I don't know if he was answering the request line for a little while to see who was out there listening to the radio. But at any rate, he started asking me all kinds of questions about music and why I wanted to hear those songs and what else I liked. And he could see that I was pretty well versed in music because, as as I said, from the time I was a, a teenager and the time the Beatles came upon the scene, I really got very, very into music. So he invited me down to the radio station to make a tape, which I said, sure, I'll come down. And I went down on a Wednesday. I never really made a tape. I just sat and talked to him for a little while. And he said, well, I want to put you on the air this Saturday. So I said, okay. And I said, well, what will I play? And he would tell me to play whatever you want and talk about the music. And so that's what I did. That was my start in radio. That was the first time I was on the air was July 12th, 1970. It was a radio station in New York City called WABC-FM, which later turned into WPLJ. When you first sat in that chair on July 12th, 1970, were you scared? Were you excited? Did you have any fears? You know, I kind of hid behind the music a little bit. I... uh, I wish I could remember the very first song I played. It was probably a Beatles song because I was really into the Beatles. And that would be a great starting point for me. But I wouldn't say I was nervous. We had engineers at the time. So I wasn't alone in the studio. I was sitting across from an engineer. And uh, I kind of approached it just like as if I was talking to him, the engineer. So it's kind of like a podcast. We're talking to one person. Whoever's listening, hi. We're, we're yeah. in your ears right Hi. now. I'm assuming tons of big stars and artists were coming in and out for interviews and that you had the chance to go meet them in the field. Who did you get the chance to meet? Oh, people always ask me that question. And I think the way I like to answer it is by telling people that it's not who I did meet. It's who I didn't meet because everybody else I met <laughs> So the people I didn't meet are like Mick Jagger and Rod Stewart, Jeff Lynn from the Electric Light Orchestra. But I met everybody else. We love ELO. Paul McCartney. We love ELO. Yes. We love Mr. Blue Sky. Milo's favorite song. Yes, we do. And uh, But I did get to meet and interview Paul McCartney, uh, Billy Joel, David Bowie, the Doobie Brothers. I mean, whoever you could think of. I probably met them. Did you tell me that you were once in the elevator with John Lennon? When I finished doing my show at WPLJ sometimes, the show that came on after me was a talk show. John Lennon was there, and when John was going to be on the show, they told me, could you go downstairs and greet John Lennon in the lobby of the building and bring him up? So I said, okay. 
So I went downstairs and uh, John and Yoko were both there. And when he came up, when we were riding up in the elevator, I remember he asked me for gum. He says, you got any gum? <laughs> and <laughs> I'm going like this, you know, trying to feel, do I have any gum? I mean, this is the guy who like influenced me to get into music and radio. And all he wanted from me was gum. And I, and I didn't have any. And he said, geez, John, I'm sorry. I just don't. He, he goes, oh, I thought all Americans chewed gum. <laughs> <laughs> so then anyway, we went into the, I brought him up into the radio station. And this was a time when John was having trouble with the United States Immigration Office. The certain politicians wanted to deport him. This was a time when somebody actually knew where John Lennon was because they heard him on the radio came up to the radio station and served John Lennon with a summons to appear in court concerning his immigration status. John got very nervous and actually went into the men's room and threw up. He threw up there. And then when I came into work the next day and uh, I went to pee in the, in the bathroom before I went on the air, there was a sign on the stall where it was and it said, John Lennon threw up here. <laughs> I think that's and that iconic. And stayed there for weeks. Pretty iconic. Yeah. You got to keep that sign up. Definitely. Can you try to paint me a picture of what life was like in the 19, I guess, late 1960s, early 1970s as someone who's in your young 20s? When you say that you were a hippie, I mean, I've yeah. seen pictures. You had long hair, somewhat of an afro almost. Earring. My understanding is you didn't wear shoes. What? Was, who were you? <laughs> there were times I didn't wear shoes. I went over to your mom's house one day when we were dating, and I came with no shoes. And your grandfather, who you never met, unfortunately, you know, later I found out he said to your mom, he came over with no shoes. You know, I probably had like beads around my neck. Yeah, I might have even had a mustache some some of that time also. And when you say hippie, is that a mindset or is that drugs? No, I think it's a mindset because when you say hippie, you might think of somebody almost like a street urchin. And we, I wasn't that. You know, I did I, I did have a home and a job and a, an education, but it was a mindset of being. Free, liberal, yeah. So were you opposed to the Vietnam War? I was opposed to the Vietnam War. I protested against the Vietnam War at college, which was American University in Washington, D.C. You know, I transferred to American. My first two years of college, I went to school at the University of Arizona. And out there in Arizona, all we did is like smoke pot and lie in the sun. You know, every once in a while we would go to class. <laughs> we were just like... Free hippies. We didn't follow what was going on in the government and the war and all that stuff. But when I moved to Washington, D.C., that was we were in the midst of it all, the nation's capital, and that's where demonstrations were happening all the time. So I became, you know, involved in, in that and, and got tear gassed um, protesting the war at American. And uh, yeah. Didn't you also do something to avoid getting drafted? I didn't do something to get to avoid getting drafted. I had a, a college deferment. They had um, a lottery. I had to have a look, get a low number in the lottery, and I just never was called for a physical. But there was a guy. This was in Arizona, 
who was a college friend of mine, and he got called for a physical and didn't want to go and was afraid of it and everything. And so he asked me if I would... <laughs> he, he asked me if I, we had, we had trunks, you know, that we packed all of our clothes in when we went to um, a distant place for college and packed all of our belongings in a trunk. He asked me if I would drop a trunk <laughs> on his hand to break his hand so that when he went to the physical, they would send him away, you know, because he had a you broken hand. So I did. It, what did, it, did what happened? What, did you hear the bones snap? I, I, the trunk was heavy as hell. He put his hand on the table. I lifted it up and boom. Yeah. Did he yell? Did he scream? <laughs> did his hand look crazy? He went, ah! <laughs> it didn't bleed or anything, but I think I did maybe break a few bones in his hand. And he got out of things for a while. I don't know exactly what his fate was in the end, but he was dismissed and told to come back another Boy. time. I didn't just drop it on him i sort of pushed it down on him you know <laughs> all right thank you for the demo yeah. those years of being in college and then in new york city hippie life hippie living yeah. what types of drugs are we talking about well there was a lot of marijuana there was a lot of hash hash is like the uh the resin of the marijuana plant and it becomes very kind of sticky sticky stuff there was mescaline and acid some people did mushrooms Later on, there was cocaine. Did you do all of these drugs um, that you're mentioning? I smoked marijuana, smoked hash, took mescaline maybe one time, took acid only one time because I did not have a good experience when I on the time what I happened? took acid. We had this stuff called blotter acid, which was just like a piece of paper with a dot on it, and you, you didn't actually take a pill. You just put the you just put the paper on your tongue. Uh, I don't know. We were outside, and I start you start hallucinating, meaning that you see things that aren't really there. And there was a, I think there was a bug on the ground, and then all of a sudden, I felt like there was thousands of bugs, and they were all over the place, and I did not like it. I did not like it, and and also you get very scared on those kind of drugs that you're never going to be normal again, you know. It, is this going to be the way I am forever now? You know, you think. And so that was my one experience with with acid. We also had uppers and downers. You know, we called them reds or blackies, reds. And you took them and, you, you know, you, you get all wired up and you don't sleep. You don't sleep. And that you, we actually started use, doing that because we had to stay up at night to pull an all-nighter to study for a test. Downers were drugs like... Quaaludes, where they're, I think the, the technical name for it is a hypnotic sedative. And you take it, but you stay awake on it, and you, it's almost like being drunk. Are these drugs you're taking in a casual night when you're going out in New York City? Uh, most of this stuff is, it, it, it goes back to college, my college days, you know. Um, in in New York City, going to the clubs and stuff like that, it would just get high on um, on uh, on pot, marijuana, cocaine was also. I remember we would take our credit cards. You put put a little bit of cocaine on the table, and you take your credit card and sort of chop it and make it very fine, and then form it into a line, 
and you take a straw and you I put it like in your nose. I feel like you're teaching me how to do drugs right now. <laughs> well, this is the real stuff, baby. This is the real That's stuff. It. Never have done it for more than 30 years now because just never would do it again. Was there ever a time when you were in the thick of that that you, I don't exactly know how to frame the question, but that you felt like you were addicted to it? Um, I liked it a lot and... Uh, yeah, I I suppose, you know, I w- would seek it out off, often often enough. Um, but the thing about me and addiction is I, I don't ever, I never felt like I had to, like, go to rehab or something. Like, even when I stopped smoking, I stopped smoking. I just stopped cold turkey and never went back. And, and, and it became sort of annoying, you know. It, it's annoying when someone, smoke, when someone smokes around me now. Same thing with cocaine. Cocaine was right before we were born. That wasn't a college thing. Cocaine went into the into the uh, radio and music life. A lot of other companions of mine and artists were into cocaine. There was a time up at the radio station during heavy metal from hell where I would have a guest on, and I can remember one time. I don't want to say his name, but I had a very famous guest on, a name that you would know from a band that you would know. And um, I wasn't doing it then, but he was doing cocaine in the studio. Even cut a line. (laughs) This is crazy. This is crazy. He would cut a line of cocaine on the label of a record that was turning on the turntable. That record was on the air. And as it came around, he would snorted up you know as it's spinning around and the next night he was on the larry king show on cnn a talk show saying that he never ever does drugs anymore the mm. next night after he was on with me snorting cocaine off the record on the air no pun fast. intended that was off the record <laughs> good one <laughs> that was off the record. that is the real stuff wow, off the I record wish, i wish i could know who it was i'm going to ask you later i know you don't want to be incriminated i'll tell you in private no i i, I don't want to i don't want to i don't want to reveal who that was but it was somebody very famous who everybody would know i want to go back to woodstock because i know that was a big drug yeah. time and party time and one of the yeah. most famous events of the past. Woodstock was before my radio mm-hmm. career, I have to say. Woodstock was 1969, the summer before I got into radio. I still have the tickets because nobody ever collected the tickets up in Woodstock. You know, they were they were just overwhelmed. You know, they, I don't know how many tickets they sold, but I think m- maybe four or 500,000 people showed up and the, they were completely overwhelmed and fences were torn down. We went up to Woodstock in a Fink bread truck which was my family's business. We had a, a bakery, I said, and we had a delivery truck, and we went up. And the drug that we had with us there was hash. We had hash. And there was a... I remember there was like a hole in the in the floor of the truck right near the driver's seat that we knew if we got stopped by the cops, we could throw the hash it just down. just went out to the street? And ditch it down into the street. Yeah, there was a hole in the floor. That went down straight down. You had your escape plan ready. So we never got we never got stopped by the cops though. We never we never did. So what happened at Woodstock? You pull up in the truck. Well, I told you my my, we went up with with about three or four guys, all high school friends, and one girl whose name was Susan Tippograph. She asked if she could come up with us. 
So she parked her car in front of my friend's house and came up to Woodstock with us in the truck. And just to keep it short, we lost track of Susan once she got up there. If we didn't stay in a group, you would have lost track of everybody. And if you didn't come back to the truck, like at night, you, you, you never would have found each other. So we always knew that we could come back to the truck at night, which was also good because Woodstock was a rainy, kind of muddy mess, and the truck was a perfect spot to be and stay dry. But we lost Susan up there. And then when it came time to leave, we said, well, what do we do about Susan? Because there was no way to find her amongst 300,000 people. So we left. You left. Uh, and left her there. We left her. We left poor Susan, Susan Timograph. still at Woodstock yeah. today. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, the Woodstock was August, like 15th and 16th. And, by, and her car stayed in front of my friend's house oh, for no. months. I think it was like the day before Halloween when all of a sudden the car disappeared. We were wondering all during that time, should we call Susan's mother? But then... All of a sudden, one day, the car was gone. So we figured, ah, Susan finally made it back. She got her car. She's gone. And that's the end of it. Oh. Then a few years later, I heard about Susan Tippograph, who became a radical lawyer. She was a lawyer who was defending some of these radical groups that were opposed to the war and also part of the early black power movement, like the Black Panthers. And she was their lawyer defending them. And one time, just a few years ago, she heard me on the radio while she was driving up to, I think, her summer home somewhere up in the Catskills or something, and she wrote me a letter. Oh. And that was just, that was Susan, just Susan, amazing. if you're listening, I'm so yes. sorry my dad abandoned you, and I'd love to get you on the show to hear <laughs> your side of the story of coming back to where the truck was parked and finding that they ditched you in Woodstock, New York, in the pouring rain and sludge. That's a good Woodstock story. But everything is pretty much documented in the Woodstock movie, where you can hear the announcer, whose name is Chipmunk. Yeah, his name is Chipmunk. Chipmunk. That's his name. <laughs> and uh, But he's making the stage announcements, and he's telling people, don't eat the brown acid. You know, the, the, the brown acid was bad. It was tainted. People were having bad trips. So he was warning people to stay away from the brown acid. At Woodstock, we basically went for the music. Santana and uh, The Who, Grateful Dead. Jimi Hendrix was the last person to play. John Sebastian from The Love and Spoonful. Richie Havens. Just so many, so many great acts and artists. They're all documented in the Woodstock movie. And there's a moment in the Woodstock movie when they, they sort of pan down with the camera through the audience where they're passing a bottle of water down the row and the bottle passes over me. So for a fraction of a second, I'm in it. I'm there nice. I am. At Woodstock was, I, I've heard mm -hmm. rumors that it was just this one big giant orgy. Um, what was happening there? I didn't... It was, I don't know, like I said, we went up there for the music. I mean, it was, it, it, it was hot. It was steamy. People, some people had their clothes off. Yeah, because, and it was muddy and people were in the mud. And it was just, it was kind of gross. There was some sex going on up there. We didn't have it. I was just with a bunch of guys. So um, there was no. But I, were I people having sex, sex in there, public? I, I didn't see it. Maybe in the in the Woodstock movie, there's sort of some innuendo about that, and there's some certainly some, I guess, some topless girls and stuff like that. But I I didn't see All right. it during that summer. My friend Kenny was working at the New York Times, 
And uh, a couple of weeks after Woodstock, the people at the Times knew that Kenny went there and, and said, Kenny, can you get a couple of people that you went with or people that you knew to come down to the New York Times and sit down and have a roundtable discussion about Woodstock? And so if you go back in the New York Times archives back in late August or maybe early September, they had an extensive article about Woodstock from the standpoint of the people who who attended the festival, and I was one of them. The interviews that they did at the roundtable discussion were were in the New York Times. And can I go downstairs for one second and get it so I can be exact? Pause for one second. Be right back. Guys, while he's gone, how cute is he? If you're not watching on YouTube, you got to watch. He's back. The date of the article is uh, August 25th, 1969. So the New York Times used to have this feature that was called the quotation of the day. It was always on the front page of the New York Times. And usually it was, I don't know, some famous politician or scientist or something. On this particular date, August 25th, 1969, they happened to use an excerpt from the conversation that we had at that roundtable discussion, me, as the quotation of the day. What did you say? What is this quote? Attributed to attributed to Jimmy, a college student, discussing the Woodstock Music and Art Fair. And the quote is... This is sick. Really <laughs> sick. The quote is, Most of the people up there, you know, almost everyone, almost everyone... Wow, you know. That's the That's whole it. quote? <laughs> that was the quotation of the day. Let me say it again. Most of the people up there, you know, almost everyone, almost everyone. Wow, you know? That's I it. wonder what you were going to say. Almost everyone <laughs> what? I need to know. Maybe they wanted to emphasize the fact that some stoned out college kid couldn't put a sentence together and decided to use that as the quotation of the day. Oh, that is rich. There that it was. is rich. It's embarrassing. No, in it's, a way. you know, it's a sign. No, it's embarrassing. It's a sign period. of the times. If nothing else, it's authentic. Yes. I want to go back to your time in the New York radio scene because I know you worked at a few stations and you worked with some big perso- personas. So, what were some of your roles? For the first seven years when I was in radio, I was basically a weekend fill-in guy. And so I did all those different radio shifts during the course of those first seven years. Then in 1978, I did the morning show for about two and a half years at WPLJ in New York. And like I say, I wound up working there for 13 years. So by 1983, my time at PLJ was coming to an end because they were changing formats. They would stop playing the classic rock that that I came there for and started playing more pop music that I wasn't really into and none of the disc jockeys were into. And uh, most most of us lost our jobs. But because PLJ was owned by ABC, I was also working for the ABC Radio Network. So I did a couple of different shows for them, including one called Rolling Stone Magazine's Continuous History of Rock and Roll. It was a nationally syndicated show on about 150 stations across America and also on Armed Forces Radio. So it was kind of worldwide. And also worked at WNBC in New York, which is where Howard Stern was at one time. And then in Live Aid Weekend, July 12th, once again, the same date as I originally got my first job, July 12th, 1970. On July 12th, 1985, 
It was a Live Aid weekend. That was a big benefit concert with Queen and Paul McCartney and The Who and just yes, a ton of I have, artists. I have seen the We Are the World. We Are yes. the World, Live Aid weekend. And that's when K-Rock signed on the air. And the program director of K-Rock said, hey, we're starting a new radio station. You want to be on it? And I said, sure. And wound up working there for another 10 or 12 years. After a couple of years at K-Rock, Howard Stern came over from WNBC. Is that how, is that how they working. say it on the air there? <laughs> That's how they would say it. Anyway, Howard came over and started doing the morning show, and I would do the midday show. So Howard's show was really supposed to be on from 6 to 10 in the morning, and I would come on and be working from 10 to 2. The thing about Howard is he never got off the air at 10 o'clock. He just would keep going, maybe sometimes until 11 or even after 11. But since my show started at 10, I walked in the Howard Stern studio at 10 o'clock every morning. And as a result, became part of the Howard Stern show for a few years. And that was a great, great experience because Howard was very different and also changed the way I was on the radio. In what way? I don't know. I just was... Howard would do so many wacky and crazy things that I would say to myself, well, there's nothing I'm going to do that's going to get me in trouble because Howard's making naked women sit on the speaker of the radio station while he plays some kind of rumbling music and they're vibrating, you know, their private parts. What am I going to do that's going to get me in trouble? Nothing. So I became very free on the air and also sort of my personality just sort of came out more and I could be very real. And it was really a great experience. I loved working at that time on, on the air. If you're the type of person who wants to be eating good quality home cooked meals regularly, but you always find yourself buying a bunch of groceries and then watching them go bad in the back of the fridge as you order takeout time and time again, it's time to sign up for Factor. With Factor, you'll get pre-prepared restaurant quality meals delivered right to your door. These meals are not frozen. Everything is freshly made. You can choose from over 35 meal options a week. Plus they have nutrition packed add-ons like 100% plant-based chocolate brownie shakes, wellness shots, and more. The meals are ready to heat and eat, so all of the shopping, chopping, prepping, and cooking is left to the experts. You can choose a schedule that works for you from as little as six meals a week all the way to 18 meals a week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries at any time. If you're already ordering so much takeout, I promise Factor will save you money. And as a gift from the Real Stuff podcast, we're giving you 50% off at factormeals.com slash realstuff50. That's code realstuff50 at factormeals.com slash realstuff50 to get Tons of great meals at half the price. Studio 54 was this very hot place. I know that there's this Dolly Parton documentary on Netflix or something uh, where there's a scene at Studio 54 that you're in. You were dancing or standing in the background. So I kind of looked. I don't look. Good. <laughs> I'm like this. You got to watch on YouTube <laughs> to see what he's doing. Um, but I have seen the clip. Yeah, that is exactly that. what he's doing in the clip. And <laughs> I just want to hear about Studio 54 and the environment and you and Mom. Okay. Well, that was well, that was the late 1970s. So, and that was the same time when I was doing the morning show at WPLJ. We went in the very early days of Studio 54 when it was it was just starting and becoming a thing. And there was always a scene out in front of people trying to get in and wanting to get in. And very few people actually did get in. But Mark Beneke ran the door. And he, I think he knew me from PLJ. We always got in. 
so much to the effect that people from PLJ, like salespeople who could never get into Studio 54, would sort of try to tag along with us. You know, they, they would say, Jimmy, could, could you take me to Studio 54 tonight? Because we were regulars, Debbie and I. Mom, your mom and I were regulars at Studio. What 54. does that mean? How often? A few times a week. You. The thing is, we. You know, Studio Fifty Four didn't start happening until like eleven o'clock at night. So you would get there at eleven o'clock at night. Actually, we would stay there all night. I would take mommy home and then go in and do the morning show at PLJ. And then not sleep. After the morning show was over, go home, and go to sleep during the whole day. Wake up, wow. Sleep during the and day. And this nocturnal living and, uh, went on for a year. A couple, couple of years. years. 78, 79, 80, the disco era, you know, and mommy and, and, and the thing is, I was on a rock station and there was a big disco blowback, you know, people would say disco sucks. And Debbie and I, were, you know, we were always really into the disco music. That's the thing about me is I'm, even though I'm on a rock station, love rock music and the Beatles and Pink Floyd and Yes and The Who and the Rolling Stones and everything. I'm into all kinds of music, yes. as you know. Some of my favorite music is like Les Miserables, show tunes. And Debbie and I were also really into the disco music. You, know? you do have a very wide yeah. breadth of musical interest. And I can say, for everyone listening, he's not lying. He is a Swifty. <laughs> and he would play. I am He would a play Taylor Swift and even some Miley Cyrus songs on the peak if you were allowed. Absolutely. If I was allowed, yeah. Well, we do play Taylor Swift when she sings with the National. And Miley, I haven't gotten to play her yet, but I love some of her songs. And as you know, we, I've taken you to see both Miley and yes, Taylor have. Swift in concert. I've yeah. wanted to know what it felt like to be in the midst of such a big media transition as you went literally from the 70s to the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and now the 2020s still working in radio. I know you did take a little brief break in the middle and got back in 2004, but there's just been so much change. And obviously with the whole rise of technology and media and social media and video and just whatever's happening today, I feel like radio in back in the day was really at its prime and you've sort of watched it and you've watched it die and you've seen it through its death, but it's like hanging on by a Loose tooth thread. So how does it feel to be in it and what has changed? I always tell people, that, you know, that, that be, between YouTube and Spotify and there's so many different, you know, ways, Pandora, uh, to listen to music. The fact that you have chosen to listen to radio is quite humbling and flattering. Technologically speaking, the way radio has changed is, you know, when I first started, as I told you, we had engineers. There was a control board in front of us turntables, tape recorders, tape decks, cart machines that played little cartridges of things. Um, so much so that when I went back to my college radio station a few years ago, I was totally shocked to see that what used to be a radio studio with all of those things in it turned out to be just like a small room with a computer. And that, that was it. That was the radio station. I do my show from home. All of the music is on the hard drive. I never play a CD or a record or a tape. My biggest tool is a mouse. Yeah. To whatever level you're comfortable, can you share how it's changed monetarily? Uh, well, the radio business is surely struggling. WPLJ, which was probably worth maybe 
fifty million dollars at one time was probably sold for under twenty million dollars and sold to a religious broadcaster who who's basically you know preaching uh, the ways of the <laughs> Lord unless you're a big star like Howard Stern or you know like a rush Limbaugh, somebody who's on nationally unless you're a big giant radio star, which there are very few left anymore there's not a lot of money in it there's not a lot of money being being a broadcaster. Luckily, I was in a union after. There was after minimums, you know, and uh, uh, the, the salary was pretty good at that time. I mean, even when I first did my job in radio, that was in 1970, and I was making $10 an hour. That was a lot to make $10 an hour. That was a lot in 1970. I think probably the minimum for a big New York City disc jockey is, I don't know, maybe a little over $100,000 a year right now. What was yeah. your salary? Do you Absolutely. remember? Well, when I did the continuous history of rock and roll, I signed a contract with ABC to produce uh, 52 shows for $250,000. That's great. So a year's worth of shows for $250,000. And I wasn't even the, the talent. I was the producer of the show. And uh, to be on the air, uh, I think I was making about 130000 at uh, K-Rock. Nice. How does that compare oh. to salaries on the radio today? Yeah. <laughs> If it wasn't for the fact that I had a family business, let's put it this way, I would never have been able to send three kids to college without you guys getting college loans if it wasn't from, if I was doing it on a radio salary. So that, that, let's put it that the way. The college fund for your three children came from being part of your family's bread business and how you guys sold that business. That's, that's, that's true because it cost almost a million dollars to send three kids to school. For four years each. Yes, it's an expensive, yeah. crazy thing. Very expensive, and 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 now I probably if I had three kids and had to send them to school, it would be much more than that. I know I have thanked you, but let's make it a public thanks for sending me through college and allowing me to leave without being in student loan debt because you allowed me to start building my own wealth and starting to save and starting to invest and allowed me to have the freedom to go into a media career, which maybe wasn't as lucrative up at the start. So thank you. You're welcome. And I'm very proud that I got to send three kids to school with, and, and, and that they graduated with no debt. It's fantastic because I basically worked two jobs for a long period of time because even when I did go full-time in radio, I still had uh, a relationship at my family business. I was more on the corporate level, but I still had a job there. So I did have two jobs for a long time. I think long it's time. worth mentioning this family business for people who don't know was called Fink Baking Corporation, was a mm -hmm. bread factory and operation. Yeah, not a small corner bakery. We had a factory that had 300,000 square feet. We had 100 trucks driving all around the whole New York metropolitan area, way down to New Jersey, up into Connecticut, and down maybe even as far as Philadelphia, and out to the end of Long Island. We served restaurants, hospitals, hotels, schools, big business. At the height of the company, we were doing about $65 million a year of business selling bread wow. and rolls. And I think it's interesting because you were in radio for this you know, huge chunk of time before I was born. And then when I was born in 1992, you worked in radio for another few years after that. So I was born into you working in radio, but I was too young to know what you were doing. I remember music was a big part of our upbringing. 
But when I was really young still, you left radio and you didn't re-enter it until 2004 when you moved to the peak where you are today. And so for most of my upbringing, like all of my elementary school years, whenever we had take your daughter to work day or take your child to work day, Allie and I were going to the bread factory. I have memories of going to Long Island City, going to this factory, going into these huge freezers and these rooms where there are these huge vats of dough and you could just walk around with dough. I think it's kind of ironic that I'm celiac now because I probably would die if I walked through Fink Baking. (laughs) But you, the moment you drive up anywhere within the vicinity of the bakery, you can smell the yeast and the bread. And I remember you would come to our classes. Like for show and tell, we used to bring in loaves of bread that they would make at the bakery for us that were animals like lizards and alligators yeah. it's interesting because my my right. perception of who you were in the working world was always that you worked at fink bakery until you got back into right. radio when i was old enough to recognize what you were doing yeah which you and you were about uh 12 when i when when i came back into to work at the peak at 107.1 the peak where i am now the thing is in, in the late 1990s my brother your Uncle Stevie, had a heart attack. And um, I really felt like I had to leave radio and go back to the bread business to sort of help him out. It it was really to help him out and wind down the bread business and either try to sell it or do something because he wasn't well. I wasn't really happy being in the, that happy being in the bread business because music was my thing. So I was there basically and we wound down and then in the year 2000, we finally sold the, the bread business to someone. Unfortunately, the bread, the bread business, which by the way, had been in existence since, ni- since 1888, over a hundred years, but the person we sold it to only lasted in business for 18 months. But my brother and I, when we sold the business, we only sold the business itself. We did not sell the property in Long Island City that the business sat on. And that was a, val- it's a valuable asset because the, the land in Long Island City was, is worth considerable amount. We sold, we sold that as well. And that's when I got back into radio. How much that. did that building sell for? I don't know if I ever knew that. I think it sold, well, there were other people involved in the, in the company besides me and my brother, but I think it sold for around, it was probably around $6 million. $6 million. If people follow me on TikTok, they've maybe seen your epic vinyl collection that spans five or six floor-to-ceiling closets and is in alphabetical <laughs> order. Tell us about the vinyl. The vinyl goes from ABBA to ZZ Top. And in the middle are like just about every band that you could think of. Mostly, I would say it's a rock, co- a rock collection. Recently, your mom and I have decided to move so i boxed up the rock records and there are 40 boxes there are 40 boxes. yeah i want to say i walked upstairs and i saw you know stacks and stacks and stacks of boxes the last time i came to see you yeah and i thought wow they Mm -hmm. packed up the whole upstairs and then i kept i looked at the boxes (laughs) closer and it said jimmy's records number 28 that's right there, there are yeah. 40 boxes of records. We sort of touched on it a tiny bit, but you really made a 180 after you had kids. As you said, you dropped your smoking, you stopped doing cocaine, you stopped the partying, and you, as you said, you waited 16 years before you had kids 
in the time when you were married to mom. Mm-hmm. What was yes. going through your head when you made these changes? Were you like, I'm finally ready to be here in my life and I'm so done with all of that? Or were you like, I just need to be responsible now because I'm a dad? Yeah, a lot of the attitude of been there, done that, you know, what's you can't go on like that because I also came to the realization that some of these drugs, like especially cocaine, it's, it's, it's a really terrible drug. And, uh, you know, if you do it long enough, you're eventually going to die. Not that I didn't have anything to live for before I had kids. Certainly had a lot to live for. But I was finished with the wild and craziness of, uh, of my youth, I guess you might say. All right. And now, today, here we are. Yes. Here we are where marijuana has become legal. It's just, it's pretty unbelievable that as I'm turning, you know, 75 years old, there are stores popping up selling stuff that we, you know, had to hide and run around to find somebody to buy it from, uh, you know, back in the 60s and were worried about getting busted. And uh, now you you just uh, go into the store to buy it. Have you been doing that lately? No, no, I haven't. Because I don't want to smoke ever again. (laughs) Even marijuana, I don't want to smoke. You know, I could say that I've done some edibles, but I'm certainly not not doing it regularly at any time. Maybe if I'm going to a concert, you know, I might I might do it, something like that. But generally speaking, I I don't do I don't do it a lot. And how has it felt to have a daughter who has followed pretty closely in your footsteps? Well, thankfully, you didn't follow in my footsteps as far as my <laughs> drug uh, past is concerned. That is true. None of my none of my daughters have. Yeah, you no. Know, well, I always say now, you know that you know since you have like these five hundred thousand TikTok followers and five hundred more than five hundred thousand subscribers on YouTube, that now when I go on stage to introduce a band, uh, instead of saying, "Hey, I'm Jimmy Fink from one hundred seven point one, The Peak." I just would go on and say, hey, I'm Jimmy Fink, Lucy Fink's dad. (laughs) You do not do that. (laughs) You have had some people stop you in a grocery store or somewhere and say that they've seen you on my my pages. Yes. Yes, of course. Anything else you want to share? Uh, Anything you want to ask me? Just that I think you've come up with just a beautiful child. You know, Milo is just so special. He's so great. I love spending time with him. Love turning him on to music. Yeah, he loves music. Yesterday you, yesterday, you sent me a video where he basically sang the Yellow Submarine song from beginning to end, not just like the, the one line of it, you know. And also, you know, my Spotify wrapped last year. You know, at the end of the year, they tell you what the things you listened to the most were. And, well, the thing I listened to most last year was Yellow Submarine. Because I'm playing it for Milo all the time one. when he gets in the car. Yeah. And 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 also Mr. Blue Sky. Yep. And I have to say that your brother is basically like one of the chief people behind Spotify Wrapped because he works for Spotify. Yep. You had yeah. two out of your three kids take somewhat of a similar path to you. I mean, Robbie is in a band, so he has the musical element of him, and he's obviously a guitar player and a singer. And he now works at Spotify. Mm-hmm. His band song is the theme song of this show. Thank you, East Love. Nice. Rolling Stone. And then you have me, who I'm not a, a radio host, but I'm almost the modern, You're a media the modern day media 
radio version, especially now with the podcast being on a microphone and being in a studio like like you were. And then you have Allie who works in finance. So you got two out of three kids who have your media gene in some way. And I'm extremely proud of that. Extremely proud Thank of you, you for everything that, that you've done. Thanks. Well, I'm so lucky to be your daughter. I think you know, I've told you many times that I think you're really cool. It's not the tattoos. <laughs> it's not the bare feet. It's not the afros. Your earring. It's the essence of what a loving, amazing, present father you've been to all three of us. And we love you. And I'm so grateful to have the chance to bring you on The Real Stuff. And I hope you'll become a lifelong listener. I will. I will. But I don't know if I'll link to it because I don't know if I want all my friends to know The Real Stuff. That's okay. I actually me. anticipate a lot, a lot of guests are... <laughs> gonna come on have the conversations and then it's like a ding dong ditch no one wants to share it once it's live <laughs> all right thanks dad love you so much love See you Lou. <laughs> bye-bye thanks for having me on the real, real stuff. stuff baby bring up that off theme the music. record <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in to the real stuff i'm lucy fink don't forget to follow the show on social media at the real stuff pod and if you're liking these episodes, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a written review. It helps the show so much. And if you're feeling called to come on the show, visit lucyfink.com apply and tell us your story. We'll see you next week for another intimate conversation on The Real Stuff. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.